reading from the 16th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, beginning with verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with His angels in the glory of the Father. And then He will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, There are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Boy, Peter went on a little railroad trip, didn't he? A little roller coaster action. One minute he's making that great confession that personalized his relationship with Jesus. He had that define the relationship with Jesus. Y'all remember that when you were teenagers and you were dating and you were sitting there and your girlfriend or your boyfriend said, so where do you see this going? That's a scary conversation, isn't it? What if they don't see it going where I see it going? Well, that's what happened to Peter. Peter didn't see this whole Messiah thing going where Jesus saw it going. Jesus saw it going to the cross. Peter saw it going to overthrow Rome. Surely you're not going to go and let them kill you, Jesus. That's not what Messiah does. That's not what I want. For just a moment, Peter forgot his place. Peter forgot that he was the disciple and Jesus was the Master. Today, I hear as much talk about Jesus as if He's some cosmic vending machine as I do about Him being a Savior or even more, a Lord. Most people are willing to hear the thought that Jesus came to save us. What they don't want is a Jesus who will make demands on us. A Jesus who will call us to follow Him. Do you know that Jesus said, follow me more often than He said, believe in me? And even worse, Jesus said that follow Him looked like that thing on the wall. A Roman torture device. To take it up and carry it. Pick up yours. I got mine, you get yours and let's go. That's scary stuff. And Peter didn't want anything to do with it. And I don't blame him. 
cross is a scary thought. They're easy to wear because they look pretty. They look nice on a t-shirt. But I know that Jesus did not say, they will know you're my disciples by your cool t-shirts. He said that people would know that we're his disciples because we love one another. What do we make of what happened to Peter? I can't imagine how anguishing of an experience that must have been to suddenly have everything he thought was going right be challenged and fall apart. He hit the nail on the head. Jesus even praised him for it. He said, Peter, you're the rock. You're the foundation stone. And I'm going to build the church on you. And two breaths later, Jesus told him, Peter, you're the stone I'm tripping over. You're a stumbling block to me. Get behind me. Get in your proper place, Peter. Come after me. Sometimes I'll hear people talk about pursuing Jesus. I kind of like that language. The only problem is, is that Jesus is constantly pursuing us as well. But we're called to follow Him. We're called to follow Him, to go where He would lead us. Carrying a cross. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like easy work to me. I wonder if you've had one of those anguishing moments like Peter had where everything you thought about the world turned out to be wrong, where suddenly you were faced with an extreme moment of decision. What's the right thing? That's what Peter's struggling with. Surely, Jesus, this isn't the right thing to do. Surely you're not going to go and be killed. Peter had a hard time hearing the be raised part. He got stuck on being rejected, on being suffering, and being killed. I wonder if you faced one of those anguishing moments where you were tempted to do the wrong thing, where you felt like Peter, you felt like shouting, Surely, Lord, this can't be the right thing. I wonder if you've ever had one of those moments where you felt your only choice was to be selfish. Maybe you faced one of those moments in which you were tempted to do a sinful thing in order to gain something for yourself that you thought you should have in the first place. Maybe you've been tempted to do something to gain affirmation, to preserve face, or simply just to take the easy way out. That's what Peter was looking for. Jesus was Lord no matter what. Surely you can do it another way, Jesus. Isn't that the voice Satan used when he came to Jesus in the desert? Throw yourself off the temple. They'll notice you. Peter was tempted to point out the easy way I bet that we've all had those experiences where we knew that the easier way maybe wasn't the right way, but it would save us some hurt, some embarrassment, ridicule. God forbid it, Lord, he said, this must never happen to you. For us, the words of that temptation might be like, who will know? If you do the right thing, you'll get fired. If you don't do this, no one will like you. Do you hear that, young ones? That's coming to you. 
Your friends are going to say to you one day, if you don't do this, you won't be popular. Be ready to choose that day the cross instead of popularity. It's moments like those that we're tempted just as Jesus was, just as Peter was. Remember Jesus prayed in the garden, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. We're tempted to live as if what God wants doesn't matter. And sometimes even worse with that than that, we actually live as if God doesn't exist. Relying on ourselves and doing whatever we want. Never giving any thought to what God might have us do with our lives, what God might have us do with our times, our talents, our money. All of those things. Claiming them all for ourselves and living as if God doesn't exist. And that's what Peter was up to. He wanted Jesus to ignore what God had put in his heart to who he was. And instead to take a different road. A life that looks as if God exists is a life shaped by the cross. It's a life lived in the proper place behind Jesus. You might have noticed that I don't start my sermons with one of those, may the meditations of my heart, the words of my lips be acceptable to you, O Lord. Because I figure if I haven't prayed that all week, it's not going to make any difference right now. But one of the best pre-sermon prayers I ever heard, Reverend H. Larry Jones prayed it down in Swansea, South Carolina at at the Pentecostal church there. And he said, Lord, put me in the shadow of your cross. Allow no flesh to glory in your sight, especially mine. I pray that sometimes when I stop right there. You should know that when I stop there, I'm not just letting Charlie finish. I'm a little bit petrified of what God has called me to take up today. Of this cross that He said is mine. Because I was happy being an architect. But following Jesus meant I had to do this. And the more I loved Christ, the more I wanted to follow Christ, and the more miserable I became being a happy architect. I know that sounds crazy. I'm crazy, I can tell you that. But for me, taking up a cross looks like this. There's some days this ain't what I want to do. I'd rather go with y'all to the racetrack, the football game, to the lake, camping, all those things that are there. But this is my cross. Sometimes your cross is to come to worship. And as Billy Ann said, listen to me twice. That's out there. Mark Allen Powell, one of my favorite theologians, said that a woman came to him one time and said, Mark, I don't like worship. He said, take it up as a cross and glorify God with it. Make a sacrifice and do it. I don't know what your cross looks like. I can't tell you how to go out and find it. My cross found me. I can't tell you what it will look like for you to be obedient to Jesus, but I can promise you that the moment will come when you will face that anguishing decision. Will I admit my faith and glorify Christ in this trial? Or will I take that road of self-preservation and say that I'm number one? That choice is coming. Whether you're 8 or 88, it will happen maybe even this week. You will be presented with a chance to do something that might get you some great gains, might get you some popularity. Everybody might say, I just love her. 
But if you do the right thing, it might cost you friends. It might cost you relationships. It might cost you a job. It might cost you your life. Jesus, when He said that He must go to Jerusalem, used the Greek word die. It's often called the divine necessity. What He said is, it is necessary that I go. There's no other option. There's no choice. I must go and suffer, be killed, and be raised. And if you want to follow after Me, you must take that up for yourself. You are called to go and suffer, be killed, and be raised. That's what the church is. A collection of crazy people who do that. That's what we are. People who want to abandon everything this world stands for and claim instead the kingdom of Christ for our lives. To claim that instead there's something higher to live for than all that stuff the marketers want to sell us. I wonder if you've ever noticed that most of the newscast is associated with things that don't glorify anything. Our world is fascinated with violence and the pursuit of wealth. Taking up the cross is a denial of both of those. If we want to be followers of Jesus, we make, must take up our cross. I wish that I could tell you that I could sit down with you and tell you what your cross is, but I can't. But I can tell you what the cross looked like for two other people. I can tell you what the cross looked like for a man named Sam. For more than a decade, he had operated a successful counseling business. Sam was a Christian, and he liked helping people. And he worked in an industrial city in the southeast. He had contracts with major corporations that brought growth and progress into the area, and they relied on him to keep their employees in sound mind. That counseling center offered all kinds of services, but most of his clients needed help with a drinking problem. The center's contract with each corporation enabled those employees to come in and see him, and nobody ever knew they had been there, because the employer knew that if their employees were freed from things that hindered them, they would be happier and work harder. But Sam saw it as a way to serve a human need, to take care of people. And one day, the executive vice president of the largest firm he had under contract, the firm that paid most of his bills, came in to see him. And to his shock and amazement, that man demanded to see the files for his employees. He wanted to know who had been coming to see Sam. And Sam told him politely but firmly that that was impossible, that the files were completely confidential, and the vice president's face became red and spoke loudly and harshly to Sam and repeated insistently that the files be given to him, but Sam continued to refuse. Finally, the vice president stood up and moved toward the door. As he touched the doorknob, he turned around, he paused, and he stared at Sam. Very well, since you insist, tomorrow our legal department will contact you to terminate our contract with you immediately. How many of our employees do you suppose have availed themselves of your services? More than a hundred? Sam again reminded him that that was confidential information. 
No matter, the man said, you won't be seeing them anymore unless you give me their files right now, and I mean right now. Sam had a vision of his counseling practice collapsing like a building demolished by explosives. He pictured his own finances also reduced to rubble. Then he addressed the executive in his measured voice and said, Dick, how many times do I have to tell you it can't be done? It just can't be done. My center's work with your employees is completely confidential. Cancel the contract if you must, but you'll never get those files. Never. The vice president walked back and took his seat again. Okay, he said in a subdued voice. If that's the way it is, I guess it's safe to tell you why I came. I have a drinking problem and I need your help. When he uttered his final refusal of the vice president's demand, Sam stepped into a kind of death. He took up a cross and said, I'm not what matters most. My financial well-being, my health, my outlook for life isn't what matters most. What matters most is what I've been given to do for Christ. What matters most is being obedient. And Sam took up his cross and refused to give in to what he knew was wrong. It was a death that he freely chose, one that flowed from all that he was as a professional, as a counselor, and as a Christian, as a human being. When he uttered that final refusal, he was giving up life as he knew it and accepting whatever cost would come as he sought to be obedient to Christ, to love others above himself. Second story. My choir sang a little while ago, I have decided to follow Jesus. It's a hymn written by an Indian man, a man from India, named Sadhu Sundar Singh. The melody is also Indian. It's entitled a psalm after the area where it originated. There's fierce opposition in that place at that time as various tribes of people were known for headhunting and killing people for having different beliefs than their own. The lyrics are based on the last word of a man in a psalm, a man that the writer witnessed being killed for his faith. In northeast India, this man, along with his family, was converted to Christianity in the middle of the 19th century through the efforts of a Welsh missionary. Called to renounce his faith by the village chief, the convert declared, I have decided to follow Jesus. He took up his cross. Rather than deny Christ and keep his life, he took up his cross. In response to threats to his family, he continued, Though no one joins me, still I will follow. He still took up his cross. His wife was killed and he was executed while singing, The cross before me, the world behind me. This display of faith is reported to have led to the conversion of the chief and others in that village. An American hymn editor named, Will, editor named William Jensen Reynolds composed the arrangement that we heard. It was included in a 1959 assembly songbook 
And that version became a regular feature in the Billy Graham crusade. And people sang it all across America as they walked into faith in Christ. Because one man took up his cross and refused the easy way out. He didn't listen to Peter's voice when Peter said, this must not happen to you. This must not happen to me. But instead chose to follow Christ and to glorify Christ. I can't tell you what your cross looks like. But that's what it looked like for two other Christians to take up the cross and follow Jesus. What hard decision are you struggling with? What habit, what sin, what state of mind, what depression, what loss of hope are you struggling with? How could we, all of us gathered around you who love you, help you take up a cross and bear it to glorify Christ? If there's an answer in your heart to that question, share it with us. Let us help you carry your cross. We're called, Paul said, to bear one another's burdens. That's the proper place of a disciple. Not in front of Christ, telling Christ what we want or need, what He should do for us, but behind Christ, following Him into the shadow of the cross. To love God and love others. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.